Welcome to The Book Pace. I am Kate Gibson, and this week we're going to be talking to a first-time author who you've never heard of, but man, we want you to know her work. Her first book is remarkable, and it is Remarkably Bright Creatures, but we will get to that in just a moment. I should probably introduce you to my co-host. Who is he? And I'm Charlie Gibson, a Kate's co-host who sometimes she remembers to introduce, sometimes she forgets, but that's the story of my life. Anyway, our, our book today is Shelby Van Pelt, the author, Remarkably Bright Creatures is the name of the book, and it is written from a very unusual point of view, as you will hear. Uh, this book has been out, came out in April, and we strongly recommend it to you. But we're going to start, a lot of people have asked, what are you reading? And um, so, Kate, what are you reading? Yeah, it probably stands to reason that in a podcast all about books, we should, you know, talk about what we're reading. Um, I am attempting to explore the YA genre. It's not a genre I know a lot about. Um, So I'm reading sort of a smattering of different authors in that genre. So I finished recently uh, Kings of Be More by R. Eric Thomas and All My Rage by Sabah Tahir. And I think YA is a is an age that you can write for that you can easily get wrong. But I feel like both of these authors did a terrific job of bringing the pressures and the pain of being that age and making it very vivid. And so, as I say, I I enjoyed not enjoyed reading those books hmm. uh, because they were written well. As, as a number of people have said to us, what you want to do is find yourself in a book. And, and young teenagers are going through difficult times. There's no getting around it. And if they can find their thoughts and their likenesses in a book, they will respond to it. Uh, there are a lot of young adult books, and I think you have to sample among them to find yourself. But when you do, I think you will be in love with reading. And we want young parents, parents of young kids, to be listening to this podcast. And so we will do in the future, a number of podcasts on young adult books and even younger. You got me to read a book that was probably aimed at kids, I would guess, 9 to 12, called Once Upon a Tim. Not Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Tim, written by Stuart Gibbs. It's very, very funny. Oh, I got a huge kick out of this book. It's a fantastic cross, I think, between a graphic novel and a book. There's some great illustrations in there that carry the plot forward, which are terrific. He 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 gets that age's sense of humor, mm-hmm. minus the fart jokes. Um, and I, th- I, I, I think he does a great job of, minus the fart jokes, um, oh. but he does a great <laughs> job, I think, of selling to that age. Um, and I, 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 I loved that book. I thought it was charming to the nth degree. And it's about the same age uh, target with that book as the Wimpy Kids books. And I, those are almost required reading, I think, for kids that are in that age uh, cohort. Uh, our grandchildren have read them cover to cover. The Wimpy Kids books uh, speak to kids in that age. But you also got me reading a number of books that, uh, uh, that we might feature in the podcast. Happy for you which is a novel by Claire Stanford I'm reading, which came out in April. Uh, I'm also reading a book called Horse. Jan Weissmiller, uh, who spoke with us from the Prairie Lights bookstore in uh, Iowa City, Iowa, recommended this book called Horse by Geraldine Brooks. It comes out in June. She also talked about good depictions of rural America and recommended a book called The Meadow, which I'm also reading. Uh, it's, it's many, many, many years old, but it's almost poetic in its approach. So, those are what we're 
not struggling with at all, but enjoying reading at the moment. Um, <laughs> as I say, Kate has has uh, sort of drowned me in books. Uh, uh, I've got enough reading here uh, for potential <laughs> podcasts that'll last me probably five years if I read them, read them all. But today's book is is an author that Kate brought to me and said, "You've got to read Remarkably Bright Creatures. It is different, it is funny, um, and it has a wonderful plot." Which I kept thinking all the way through, is she going to be able to pay this off? She does it magnificently. Shelby Van Pelt is her name. Remarkably Bright Creatures is her first novel. Shelby Van Pelt, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And as we speak, you are now days away from the release of your first novel. Are you nervous it has been a wild ride, and I would be lying if I said I wasn't a little bit nervous. Um, you know, my life today, compared to how it was a couple years ago when I started down this journey of querying a novel, it's pretty unrecognizable. Um, but it's been a fun ride, too. And so I am nervous, but I'm also really, really excited and um, very, very lucky to be here. <laughs> so remarkably bright creatures. You know, I hate questions uh, that are like, so where do you get those wacky story ideas? But, you know, even in the acknowledgments, um, you said that one agent wrote you, this is either brilliant or bananas. So <laughs> where did the idea of, of having an octopus as a narrator come from? And how did you go into sort of then making it into the backbone of the novel? Well, it actually came from an internet rabbit hole that I went down uh, some years ago after seeing a video, it was the Seattle Aquarium, and there was this video that went kind of semi-viral of an octopus that was trying to make a break for it. You know, in the middle of broad daylight, people standing all around, someone got it on camera of this creature trying to just go, you know, up and over the rim of its tank repeatedly. You know, it would get pushed back down and then it would try again. You know, it had, <laughs> it had a goal. And... I remember watching it and just thinking that, you know, that's a character right there. Um, there's a story in there somewhere. And then, you know, subsequently that octopus became kind of famous for a little while. So I got to see other videos of him and had a real personality, you know, the, the look in his eye and, you know, the way he would kind of glare at the camera. Um, you know, back at that time, I hadn't written much fiction at all. I think I had really just started. And so I was like, oh, that's kind of a wacky idea. Kind of filed it away. A few months later, I was taking a class and we were prompted to write from an unusual point of view. And so that's what I wrote. I wrote the, what basically became the intro to the book. You know, a lot of writers talk about how they get to know their characters. You know, they jot down, this is this character's favorite book, or this character would never do this. How do you get to know an, an octopus? I think it grew out of the tenacity of that original octopus and its determination and just something about, and I'm sure this is me projecting onto, you know, an animal, but something about the look in its eye that was just disdainful. Um, <laughs> that really made me think that what's going through this octopus's mind is that I am the superior creature here and I am imprisoned and that ought not to be the case. So, you know, I'm going to make this right. And I think out of that grew Marcellus's, you know, his, his disdain for humankind, but also his curiosity about humankind, because he doesn't have a whole lot else. There's no one else on his level, you know, in that place. You know, humans are his only rival species that, in his view, rivals his own intelligence. So he's naturally 
he feels himself very superior, but also he can't help but be curious about them. And then, you know, of course, um, he meets one human who becomes special to him. And, and that's where our story takes off. You, 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 you talk about him as being very, really contemptuous and a bit exasperated. <laughs> with human beings. Both, both Kate and I found this book to be charming. It's a, it is a lovely story about a woman who has lost her husband, lost her son. But as Kate points out, most of the book is written in the third person, except some of the chapters are written in the first person, or maybe I should say in the first octopus, uh, because Marcellus, <laughs> as you have named him, um, uh, is aquarium bound and is an observer of the human condition. And as I say, somewhat contemptuous of same. Yeah, so he's he's part character, part narrator, really. I think, um, and I definitely wanted his pieces to to stand out as being a totally different form of narration from the rest of the book, and a totally different way to in- inhabit a character versus the other characters who get the third person treatment. And you know, I kind of envisioned him just keeping a diary of you know notches on the on the wall of his days here, um, counting down to the end, really. <laughs> and uh, just wanting, you know, that, that, that want, feeling of wanting to record whatever it is that's your life into the void. You know, in my mind, he's kind of sending it into the void. I don't even, people have asked me, well, is he, is he talking to the reader? You know, clearly he's directly addressing the reader, but he's not talking. He's just kind of voicing his thoughts into the void. Um, and it, yeah, it was a lot of fun to write. <laughs> he, he's he's observing, and and you and you give him, frankly, I don't mean to to preempt your thoughts, but you give him the best lines, um, and, and I I've written down a bunch of them that I love, but but my favorite is he says, "You humans love cookies." I assume you know which food I mean. Circular, about the size of a common clamshell. Some are flecked with dark bits. Others are painted or dusted with powder. And then you have somebody say to the head of the aquarium, I've seen lots of octopuses, but you've got a smart cookie there. And then Marcellus picks up and says, my neurons number half a billion, and they are distributed among my eight arms. On occasion, I have wondered whether I might have more intelligence in a single tentacle than a human does at its entire skull. Smart cookie. I am smart. But I'm not a snack object dispensed from a packaged food machine. What a preposterous thing to say. I love that. He's, he's, uh, he's got a, a wonderful personality. To be completely honest, some of those observations come from my kids. Um, you know, <laughs> some of the things that we say as humans, like smart cookie. I mean, what does that even mean? Where did that come from? It's just something that someone made up. I'm sure I could research. I'm sure it came from somewhere, but it, it doesn't make any sense on its face. And my, my kids, especially my daughter, when she was young, were the type that would just quiz me about stuff like that, that didn't seem to make sense when they were learning the, you know, language. And, you know, yeah, Marcellus would have that view too. He's very black and white and, you know, there's not a lot of gray area in his mind, at least in the beginning. So he would wonder about that too, I think, like a toddler. <laughs> The, the part that really resonated with me is when he says, I, I don't, it's just beyond him why human beings talk about the weather so much. And I'm from Minnesota and we can't help it. <laughs> we can't. It's just something we have to do. It's compulsive. Um, this is an ambitious first novel. And, you know, a lot of folks would say, 
you know, when you start, you should write only what you know. Um, but, you know, why did you start with this? And did you ever think, what the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this as my first, <laughs> as my first foray? Oh, my gosh, so many times. Um, you, you know, I think when I started writing it, I, I kind of thought, well, I'll write a novel someday. You know, that would, that would be great. It wasn't really until a few years later, you know, I had this, the idea happened back, I want to say it was maybe 2015, something like that. And then I, you know, did these couple of classes and played around with it a bit. And then you know, I had kids and we you know, moved and did just a bunch of other stuff in family life and professional life. And so I sort of set it aside on and off for several years and then came back to it and said, okay, I'm going to actually write this novel. And it wasn't really until I started querying it that I was like, this could actually be published. <laughs> this is kind of crazy. This is just this weird little book that I wrote about an octopus. But <laughs> yeah, you know, it, uh, I worry sometimes that, you know, I, I hope that I've done octopuses justice. Um, and I hope that I've gotten the details close enough to write that it, it feels like I've done a service to them. You said you had a moment where you thought, this could actually be published. When was that? Oh gosh, that was, it would have been the fall of 2020. Uh, no, excuse me. No, yes, fall of 2020. Um, and how did you know? How did that moment hit you? Well, I, <laughs> I submitted, I was getting ready to submit my book to agents to query it, which I'd never done before. And I had a whole group of other writers who are also in a similar position and we were all going to query our books. And so we were sort of learning from each other and, you know, I, said, okay, I'm going to rip the bandit off and I'm going to query a couple agents, but I'm going to pick ones that probably are never even going to write me back because they're so good. And one of them did, <laughs> Kristen Nelson, who's my amazing <laughs> agent. And she was just so enthusiastic and excited about this book from the beginning that I just had a feeling it was going on a good path. I mean, she, uh, I think she called me like the day after I sent it to her. Just wanted to talk about it. Whoa! Um, so Whoa. Yeah, it was. It happened fast, and I got very fortunate that uh, right as I was was right. Uh, I think after I'd queried my novel, that uh, my octopus teacher came out, and watching that, it just validated so much of what you know the fictional story that I had written. Being able to watch that in this really amazingly well done documentary that was real, you know, sort of a similar storyline that happened in real life, and. You know, I think there was a lot of interest in octopuses that was generated from that. So I had really, really lucky timing in that way. When you see the movie, um, my octopus teacher, uh, you realize they are that smart. And and that is a movie about an octopus uh, developing a relationship with a human being. And basically, you've done the same thing. Um, Tova, your main protagonist, and Marcellus, your octopus, who, who may also be your main protagonist, I'm not sure, uh, do develop a, a very nice relationship. Yes. Um, the thing that I think fascinated me, you know, with, in writing the book and then, you know, rekindled my fascinating fascination watching my octopus teacher is just that they are intelligent. But the fascinating thing to me is that we don't actually know how intelligent they are. And I don't know if we know how to know. I mean, I feel like every few months an article comes out that is about some new amazing things that they've proven that cephalopods can do. You know, they can dream. They can solve a Rubik's Cube. 
um, do all of these things. And I, I feel like there's just so much we don't know. And to explore the possibility of what might be through fiction um, can be really fun. I, I love the reaction, Brilliant But Bananas, because when I started the book, I was thinking about how you would elevator pitch this book. And the elevator pitch is really intriguing. But again, my first thought was, well, if she can pull it off, it'll be really fun. Um, and so I found myself sort of cheering for you as I, I read the book. I kept going, you know, come on, Shelby, you can put, you know, and, and when you pulled it off at the end, I was like, you pulled it off. So I really enjoyed that. I want to ask you a, a philosophical question, and I don't mean to come off deeper than I actually am, but there seem to be lots of different forms of captivity in this, in this book, um, different forms of being trapped. And I, I wanted to ask you, um, is captivity a part of the human and sometimes cephalopod condition? I mean, is it inevitable? I think that, I think that we have a tendency to get stuck. Um, and I know I personally have a tendency to get stuck. And when I think about Tova and you know, Cameron and some of the other characters, and certainly Marcellus, you know, everyone is kind of stuck in their own way. Um, you know, Marcellus is literally captive in a box that he would not choose to live in if he had his choice. But, you know, I think the other characters have sort of have drawn those boxes around them and said, well, this is how it is. This is my fate. You know, this is who I am. You know, I'm destined to live out my days alone. I'm destined to be a failure. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a book about just breaking out of those cages or boxes and uh, learning to see the world in a different way. Um, but I think, you know, I don't know if everyone experiences that, but I certainly do. And it was something that really spoke to me while I was writing the book. So, An author that I once talked to on Good Morning America talked about how much he valued the technique of foreshadowing, giving the reader hints or even knowledge that the characters in the book don't have. In, in other words, the, the reader can be ahead of the principles of the novel. You obviously like doing that um, as you do it in Remarkably Bright Creatures. Yes. I Again, with, with Marcellus the octopus being the narrator, I wanted him to be the one who really was the holder of that knowledge and him to be the one that would be the the mechanism that would share it with the readers, you know, with certain things, and I won't give any spoilers, but you, I think you get a, a, some hints pretty early on of, of who these people are and how they might be connected to one another. But, you know, really it's Marcellus who, you know, is the one who puts that together and in the end, you know, kind of ties everything together. So um, foreshadowing is really fun, but I, a lot of that was, you know, I kind of wrote to the end and then said, okay, I've got to make this flow. And I've got to make, I've got to give the reader enough clues and hints that they want to keep going, you know, but not too much that it gives everything away. Well, as you point out, it is Marcellus, the octopus, who does the foreshadowing, who gives the hints to the reader. But not only does he do that, what I like more is, why can't you stupid human beings figure out Shelby's plot? <laughs> He's very frustrated with the reader. Um, why the name Marcellus? So originally... I had wanted to name him Marcus Aurelius because he's <laughs> stoic and he's always thinking about death. And, you know, I would like was a philosophy <laughs> major in college. So I thought that was really funny and cool. And uh, some of my cheek partners were like, yeah, I don't know about that, Shelby. People aren't going to get it. They're going to think it's a book about philosophy. They're going to think it's a book about some old dead guy. Like, you know, so 
Marcellus is sort of an amal, you know, a, a mashup of Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, I just liked how it, um, the double L kind of rolls off the tongue. It gives him a, it gives him a quality of erudition that I think um, is very fitting for an octopus who knows a whole lot more than the human beings in your delightful uh, story. It has really been a pleasure uh, to talk to you. It takes a bit of courage, it seems to me, to publish a novel, any novel, but especially a first. And because it's all you, you know, you've been the one <laughs> writing it. You're the one whose name is on the cover. It is an intensely personal act writing a book. And I, I wish you and I think Kate, I speak for Kate as well. We wish you great success with this. Um, you're very, you're very um, reassuring to say that you're not all that nervous, but I can't believe there isn't <laughs> a lot of nerves involved as you as you come into bookstores everywhere. So Shelby Van Pelt, good luck with Remarkably Bright Creatures. And we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Book, e-reader, or audiobook? Book book hands down do you spend more time reading or writing reading favorite time uh to read uh right before bed well, which sometimes is late if i've stayed up writing <laughs> most influential book in your life in my life gosh um I would say uh, Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius by Dave Eggers had a big impression on me the time that I read it, which was kind of before I had really started becoming a writer myself. Um, I don't know that it's been influential in my life, but in my life as a writer, that's the one book that I remember reading and thinking like, gosh, I wish I could do this. Favorite book to read to your kids? I just started reading to my eight-year-old The Westing Game. Uh, which was one of my very favorite books as a kid, uh, Westing Game by Ellen Raskin, which is just an amazing book. And I'm so excited she's finally old enough to sort of understand it and appreciate it. I have an eight-year-old who just started it. It's amazing. Revered book that you're sorry you read. That I'm sorry I read. Oh, my gosh. Like, I don't want to, like, offend any of the writers. I'm trying to think of someone who's, like, dead. <laughs> Um, I mean, I didn't 
So I didn't love The Great Gatsby when I read it. If you start a book and you know you don't like it, do you put it down or do you finish it anyway? I usually put it down. Uh, sometimes I come back to it. Um, I can be a little bit like moody when it comes to reading. So usually I'll at least give it another chance or two. Will you read your reviews? I have read some of them. I tried to stay off Goodreads. I know that's my friends who have all published have said, you know, don't go on there. Just pretend it doesn't exist. <laughs> In reality, I'd like to think that my skin is thick-ish or it will become thicker very shortly. Um, I don't know that I need to read every single review, but I'm sure that I'll read some of them. In five words, what would you want the rest of your life to be? Making time for important stuff. Shelby Van Pelt, whose novel, first novel, is in bookstores now. Remarkably bright creatures. Kate, what'd you take away from our conversation with Shelby? I love the idea that something so original um, could come from a simple writing exercise in a writing class. Just the prompt, write something from the perspective of something whose perspective we don't usually see. I'm sure the writing teacher put it in a more articulate way than I just did. But I love the idea that an entire novel grew from just that seed. Uh, what about you? What did you take away? Well, it's delightful. It really is delightful. She has a, a very good novel. Even if you put Marcellus the Octopus to the side, uh, she has two very compelling characters in Tova, uh, who is the sort of uh, uh, night night uh, manager, I guess, or night cleanup person at the aquarium, and Cameron. Uh, it's, it's a very separate story of two people that begins to merge as the book goes on. And we talked a little bit about foreshadowing, which I think is very interesting, because she does a wonderful job, I think, of letting you, the reader, know more than the characters. And you keep saying to the characters as you read it, catch up, catch up. Uh, don't you know what Marcellus knows? You know, the book has so many different characters that are trapped and isolated in different ways. And I think it's interesting the person that facilitates the freedom of the book is the one that is most obviously trapped, uh, the the octopus behind it. You know, and I also want to say, Marcellus is so disdainful of people talking about the weather. You know, he just thinks it's the dumbest subject. And I just want to say, as a Minnesotan, we, we can't help it. It's in our blood. We have to talk about the weather. It's what we have. It's who we are. So my apologies to Marcellus. Well, as people read, I think they'll find that Shelby does a wonderful job of paying it off at the end as a wonderful conclusion uh, to her book that pertains to just what Kate was talking about, uh, characters that are captive in some way. One of the things we have not talked much about in the first editions of this podcast is mysteries because, well, people love them. Everybody loves mysteries. I was fascinated when Carla Hayden, the librarian of Congress, said she was going to take a few days off. What was she going to do? She was going to read mysteries. Uh, so we had a chance. We have affiliated ourselves with a bookstore that specializes in mystery. Uh, Otto Penzler uh, began the Mysterious Bookshop here in New York many, many years ago. And he knows mysteries inside and out. And I think it'll surprise you what he thinks makes a good mystery. Otto Penzler. Otto Penzler, it's a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. And I, I'm, I'm curious, since you sell just mysteries 
First of all, I would suspect business was pretty good during the COVID crisis, or at least better than most stores, because I suspect people were pretty hungry for mysteries. During the first months of the, of the COVID attack, uh, it, it wasn't very good, but we've come back. Uh, yeah, my, mysteries are one of those universal literary uh, categories that people love. Uh, many years ago, I opened the store 43 years ago, people came in and said, well, you know, I don't really read mysteries. I said, oh, what a shame. So you've never read Crime and Punishment or Charles Dickens or any of the great writers of the 19th and early 20th century who weren't identified as mystery writers, but they were. They said, oh, well, I, that's not what I meant. You know, but, so since then, we don't have that, uh, that pomposity of people saying, oh, I don't read mysteries because there are so many great mystery writers working today. So yeah, we had, we've come back all the way and, uh, and we're flourishing and I'm touching wood as I say this. Tell me some of the new mystery writers that really excite you. A young writer, youngish writer, who I've really come to love is a man named David Gordon, uh, who writes a series about called Joe the Bouncer. Uh, and one of the things I love about them is they're set in New York, and he knows the New York setting very well. This is a former special uh, operations guy who uh, came out of the, out of uh, Iraq with uh, with drug and alcohol problems and is trying to clear up his life and he lives with his grandmother in Queens and he's but he also works as a bouncer at a strip club and his other job <laughs> I know he's, and he really is trying very hard to behave like a normal person but his other job is he had friends as in childhood um, who run crime families in New York so he is the enforcer for the crime families in New York. And the, they're, they, these books are like Elmore Leonard mixed with Donald Westlake. They're tough, but they're hilarious. And it's, it's my favorite new series. I think there are four books in the series. As someone who um, is an avid mystery reader, um, what I mean, what makes a great mystery for you? Is it a twist ending? Is it something that moves you? Is it something that spooks you? Or are there a lot of different reasons that 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 you love mysteries? And uh, truly, I bring the same uh, demands and criticisms of mystery fiction that I would to a so-called straight novel, a general uh, literary fiction. I'm I'm not interested unless I really care about the characters. You know, just a, a mere plot just doesn't do it for me anymore. I want to, and I want somebody to write and say things in a way that I've never heard written before or heard said before. But the great demands of mystery is that that's not enough. You also have to have a plot with the great <clears throat> Greek ideal of a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it has to all make sense. You can't just leave dangling material out there. You have to tie it all up. And great surprises, great uh, twists are a great bonus. Uh, take a book like Gone Girl by Gillian Flynn, a book that I love because it took me so by surprise. It shocked me. And I love that as an added bonus in addition to uh, all the other demands of literary fiction. You started this bookstore so many years ago. And... It has, it has prospered or it has lived for quite some number of years. What mystery way back when hooked you? 
made you want to do this and thought this is the genre that I want to focus on? Like so many people who did it years before I did, I started with Sherlock Holmes. And I still admire the Sherlock Holmes stories. And what Arthur Conan Doyle was able to do, write fiction that 100 years later, 140 years later, still reads so beautifully. It doesn't have uh, all the heaviness of a lot of Victorian and Edwardian fiction. So I really began with Conan Doyle, which is a terrible cliche, I recognize, but there it is. And then I read, I started to read the classics, Agatha Christie, uh, John Dixon Carr, Ellery Queen. And then I discovered Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And I learned, no, this is real literature. This isn't just great puzzles, great stories. It's serious literature. And, and I have maintained that. And I still write about it and still talk about it as serious literature, which I regard it as being. I, you know, I, I didn't realize until I started working at a bookstore that Sherlock Holmes in some ways is still very much a thriving industry. Is there, you know, there are a lot of folks who've taken a crack at him. Um, is there a favorite modern writer that you like that revisits the series that you think captures clearly not the voice of Conan Doyle, but comes close? So I've read a lot of those. The, I think the person who probably did it the best is Anthony Horowitz when he wrote The House of Silk. Is an absolute masterpiece in the sense of being a Sherlock Holmes pastiche. I always thought it was John Gardner and the Moriarty, the three Moriarty books that he wrote, who really captured the style, the rhythm, and the background of uh, of 1895. But Horowitz in the House of Silk, and to maybe a slightly lesser degree, the follow-up book called Moriarty, um, it really captures it the best. Both Kate and I are nodding because we love the Horowitz books and think he's done a marvelous job of, of emulating and bringing to life in your mind Sherlock Holmes. And, and, and I would point out to listeners, Sherlock Holmes is the patron saint of the mysterious bookshop in New York. And, and Otto, do you still have, you used to have a wonderful sign in the bookstore about warning to shoplifters. Do you still have it? I do. We, we have uh, we have police tape across one one door, but we have a sign that says nobody shoplifts from a store that knows 2,741 ways to kill you. <laughs> Otto Pensler, it is a wonderful part of New York. You can find it, folks, on Warren Street, the mysterious bookshop in Tribeca in New York. Otto Pensler, thank you ever so much. It's a great joy to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, now is the part of the podcast where we throw to credits and do stay tuned because some great people work on this podcast, including my husband. So I am biased, but here we go. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio, produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Iru Ekpenobi, and Elizabeth Russo. As you guys know, every chapter needs a great ending. So as per usual, we will have our main guest take us off the air. I will say uh, to all of us, you know, breaking out of our respective boxes of captivity and you know, embracing things that are sometimes a little bit bananas. Mm-hmm.